0: I really want to do work that people people need. You know, like, I've, I've learned that enough. But it's not enough to just do work that is creatively satisfying to me. It has to be work that other people get and say, oh, wow. And it's not, it's not showing off anymore. It's not like, yeah, look, I can prove that I'm really clever and I can get hired to be clever other places. It's more like, how can my cleverness make somebody else get something and feel better and, like, work around a problem they have? And kind of getting at that bigger meaning of work really means like talking to other people and being in more places and figuring out like what other industries I can go and illustrate in, which are pretty much all of them, but then proving it is going to be fun.
1: Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Hey, how are you? It's so nice to have you back for another episode of the podcast. I can't wait to dive in today with our guest, Jessica Heggie. Now, at Art of Coaching, we are all about communication, and communication can be difficult enough from a verbal and nonverbal standpoint, but when we talk about pictorial representations of things, graphs, charts, data, statistics, it can get even more muddy. And the thing is, there's special people like Jessica Heggie out there in the world that can take those things and in a very deceptively simple way, draw connections between them using humor, using the facts at hand and using just creative genius. There's no other way to say it to make these seemingly disparate ideas more well connected and easier to understand. And I don't care who you are. That is a very unique talent. If you need to influence a CEO, uh, an administrator, a head sport coach, your superior, your subordinates, anything like that, being able to make things that look charming and deceptively simple is one of the most effective ways that you can get them on your side. So Jessica is an artist and writer best known for her Webby award-winning blog, Indexed, And she literally takes these complex ideas and puts them on index cards. And you're going to hear more about how that started in a bit. And what's crazy about that is when we say Webby award winning, that may not mean much to you. I know I had to research it, but the New York Times literally describes it as the Internet's highest honor. It is presented by an international academy of digital arts and sciences of more than 2,000 people. And these people are subject matter experts, and they determine some of the most useful stuff out there on the internet, which I think we can all agree the internet has become kind of a cesspool uh, for quite some time. So somebody like Jessica taking it upon herself to provide such value is incredible. And she is also the author of How to Be Interesting, The Art of War Visualized, a personal favorite of mine. My book, Conscious Coaching, very much followed the Art of War kind of idea of know yourself, know thy enemy, and she took one of the most timeless pieces of work and visualized it in 2015, amongst her other books and they've been translated into a dozen languages. Now, the best way you can describe what she does is visual storytelling. It's something we're passionate about because it is a form of communication that's gonna be more and more relevant as we continue to go into the depths of the digital age. And she is just somebody that is so humble, so charming, so brilliant, that, uh, you know, I'd wanted to have her on for a while and she was gracious enough to respond to my invitation. So without further ado, all of us at Art of Coaching are proud to bring you Jessica Heggy. Get ready to laugh and get ready to be informed on a completely different level than you have on any other episode. Here we go. guys, welcome back to another episode of the Art of Coaching podcast. I'm here with somebody that I've been a fan of for a long time, Jessica Heggie. Jessica, thanks for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, and thanks for improvising, guys, a little behind the scenes. We, uh, like many people during the pandemic, sometimes run into technical issues, and it's our first time in over 114 episodes on Zoom. We've had an issue connecting there, and Jessica and I are still getting to know one another. So it's always fun slash harrowing as a host. Uh, when you have to go through two to three different mediums to connect, so Jessica has been nice enough to to jump on via the phone and and just improvise. And Jessica, it seems like as I go through your career, and we talked a lot about it on the intro of it, but improvising and being able to adapt to complexity and chaos is something you're pretty good at. As that has going with the flow always came naturally to you, or you know have you always kind of been this this laid back persona, or you know do you have some Type A tendencies that it's taken some time to work that out?
0: I definitely think that I was always oriented to just sort of like do what I had to do, and I never really had a stable career situation, so honestly, to think that I had another option would be preposterous like as if as if I didn't have to change around all the time, mm-hmm. because i just working in creative industries like it's constantly changing and evolving, and places shut down, and people move jobs, and you just you just can't get too comfy ever.
1: Yeah, no, and I've enjoyed doing research on you selfishly because, you know, one, I if there's one thing I want to bring on this episode with you, at least, I feel like some of the podcasts you've been on in the past, I'm like, wow, she is very cool under pressure because a lot of them just seemed like the, hey, let's pepper Jessica with as many questions as possible without having a conversation. So I hope if nothing else, I might ask you some goofy and weird questions here and there just to have fun. But I hope if nothing else, it's a little bit more relaxed than your previous episodes.
0: Oh, you know what? I didn't really think that I got super, super peppered, but honestly, the most pressure I've ever had was when I was doing a book tour and a bunch of people just came in off the street and were just like weirdly like confused about where they were and they thought I was somebody else and somehow I got all the questions right. So I was really proud of that.
1: But there's a reason for that. Just listening to you, you're very thoughtful about the way you interact and- I I love you said in one uh, piece of research that I was doing, you talk about how you feel like you're very wordy and we live in a time where everybody almost wants to praise just succinctness, right? Say less is more, but sometimes being wordy, in my opinion, can be a good thing because it kind of helps you just weed through the madness of your own thoughts. And then you take a mathematical look at words to kind of be somebody that's really visualized language for somebody in our audience. And we have a wide range. But when you think of just visualizing language, visualizing your thoughts, you know, how did that come about for you? You know, aside from the copywriting and and stuff that you did, where did you finally learn like, huh, this is something that I could really hone in on and, and get my message across more clearly?
0: Yeah. So I've always been a really sort of a linguistically curious person, for lack of a better phrase. And if you've ever done sentence diagramming, say in like second to seventh grade, you can see that every sentence has a visual structure. And the more I played with drawing things, the more I realized that those visual structures can echo mathematical structures. And that's sort of how I built a visual grammar around charts that tell sentences visually. And that, I mean, if nobody's seen what I, what I do, that sounds like, okay, this woman is weird. <laughs> but yeah, um, if you take a sentence diagram, you know that the crux of the sentence is always on the flat line in the middle. And you can work out of out from there and expand on what the sentence means and all of those things. And the tighter you get with your vocabulary, the more you can fit into two or three words.
1: Yeah, and I think that'll make sense to a lot of our audience, and, and I'll have linked everything that you've done in the show notes, because a lot of, you know, my base was sports performance industry. And we have to take data, and I remember, and, and it has to make sense to folks, and I remember you talking about in an episode that I listened to of yours that even after you worked for Goliath um, as a contractor for J.P. Morgan Chase and Victoria's Secret, you still went and got your MBA. And when you were taking notes, and feel free to correct any of this, when you were taking notes, you just okay. realized, huh? A lot of these are graphs. I kind of want to make these complex things a little bit more simple. That's something my audience definitely resonates with. Is is did that really? help your learning of some of these complex subjects? What about it spoke to you? Just the goofiness of it? Was it the pictorial representation? What, you know, from somebody that myself can look at graphs sometimes and be tremendously confused, how did you mesh this kind of left and right brain thinking for it to be so cohesive?
0: You know, I really do think that I'm just a very, I need to know things and find out more things. And I just collect advanced degrees because, that's my new hobby I suppose but getting into the idea of everything that can be said in a sentence can also be said in a graph Mm. and I didn't really realize I was just sort of taking like jotting notes in that way and I realized that it had a lot more punch to it when it was drawn in a graph as opposed to just written in a sentence and when I started blogging this stuff like a billion years ago in internet time it it just kind of worked and it's one of those things that There is a value in one and one equals three when you take a sentence and you make it visually useful, and it's more memorable and it just kind of sticks in your brain a little bit more.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely. It was
0: one of those accidental findings, and you just gotta run with those. Like if you're painting or sketching, and sometimes you make a spill or a mess, and it's beautiful. That's the best thing you can do all day. Like sometimes just accidentally find something where like.
1: Yeah, I think a beautiful mess is a really good way to put that. And you don't know this because, again, we're getting to know each other, but you were a tremendous help to me one time when I had uh, an intern that was, you know, very much in his own mind. Brilliant in terms of just mathematical language, science, data, what have you, but really struggled with connecting with a lot of the athletes that we were working with and He admittedly, he admitted this. He just said, I don't feel like I'm interesting. It's hard to find common points with athletes. I always just find myself wanting to educate them or inform. And I gave him your book. It was the first time I was ever introduced to your work. It was how to be more interesting. And I thought it was such a quaint, charming, you know, coffee table like book, but in it, you, you draw such tremendous connections between things. And I said, listen, every day, read a page or two of this and think about dissecting, you know, reverse engineering the idea that's expressed. And then I want you to use that as a conversation point with this individual. And, and that's what I wanted to ask you, of course, your index cards and the way you draw make sense in your own mind. When do you find that you're skilled in interpersonal, basic everyday interpersonal situations as well? Like, are you, are you somebody that would be described as an introvert? Do you not really connect with people? Well, when, just having discussions and and do you do better just visually or have you always kind of excelled in both aspects of that?
0: You know, I have um, always been very, very introverted, I think. (laughs) And connecting with other people is always sort of, I have to listen for like what side of their Velcro I can attach to. Mm. And even when I was dating my husband, there was an article like the one of the very original articles about introversion before it became like such a term that everybody knew it was caring for your introvert and I just sent that over to them like okay this is an important bit of information that you might want to have and I think too once people know like oh yeah this person is a lot like this or this person is a lot like that they get get each other right so being introverted in one way is kind of useful because I have to be like the ultimate eavesdropper like people watcher to sort of figure out what to do. And on the other side, it's sort of, yeah, this is me. And you don't have to do a lot to like keep me occupied. I'll just, I'm fine up in my office doing my thing for days on end.
1: Yeah, I can appreciate that. I remember one thing, if I recall correctly, you said you were at an airport one time and you just pulled out your laptop and you started writing down ideas because you mentioned that you're an eavesdropper. Well, I'm a huge people watcher, right? I, I love it. Yeah. And I've always wanted to just, for the fun of it, create a book. So maybe we need to collaborate on this as we get to know each other more of uh, something of just, you know, life at the airport and doing, you know, funny little things about the person, the people you observe and their quirks and their tendencies. Um, you know, when when you create, it can be really hard. I know for a lot of members of our audience, and many of them have advanced degrees themselves, but a lot of them have a lot of self-doubt, right? I think we're all familiar with some level of imposter phenomenon or syndrome oh yeah did did that ever creep up much in your career and and how do you combat that
0: oh all day every day yeah um one I I draw things on the internet and therefore I'm gonna get some feedback and there for every like this is awesome thank you for doing this you get like five emails of how dare you and this is terrible And I can't believe anyone ever told you or not. <laughs> and I I think you kind of get don't know just numb to all of it after a while and your inner sort of what am I doing am I any good at this what is happening voice kind of has to take over so kind of knowing knowing what that is but every day I just sort of sketch things out and I'm like is this any good at all like am I crazy what have I done now like this is weird and I I think if I can make myself giggle then I've done something something useful and that's the only real voice I can use
1: that's a good heuristic. I mean, I like that. I mean, humor is definitely the shortest distance between two people. You also in a previous interview used one of my favorite words of all time. You were talking about, and and this ties into what I just asked you based on, you know, you getting feedback from the internet. You said that one really positive thing about the internet and you use Twitter in particular, is it kind of showcases wide diaspora of, of a community you have, right? People that are from all different oh, places. Yeah. Um, so how has that helped you get better feedback to inform your work as well? I mean, even the haters, you know, that sit here and say, blah, blah, it's all it's all feedback, right? So how do you kind of leverage that and turn yeah. shit into sugar?
0: Well, clearly, again, if you can see um a theme in any of it, like that's real. But yeah. if it's just sort of a one off, ignore ignore the one off and like look for the theme. So if everyone's saying, like, you know what, you use too much purple, maybe you do. Like if twenty people are telling you that, maybe you know, consider it and <laughs> Or if people are like, you're you're doing this weird or you're doing this wrong or I really like this, like keep doing the good stuff and like really pay attention to the, the themes that you hear. And I think that's sort of honed a lot of what I do because I oscillate between kind of deep and dark topics and really goofy little pun type objects. And I keep it all in the mix because that's just how I am. But knowing like what people really, what resonates with people is, it's good to know because then I can make any point that I really want to get across, get across better. And there's sort of an idea of like the more truthful truth, which is just because I have an opinion about something doesn't mean that that opinion is the truth. There's a better truth of the fact. So if I can say that in a way that other people are like, Oh yeah, I get that. That's the bigger truth. Like refining what I want to say to make it more resonant.
1: Yeah, and I think- I
0: just went around in a big circle.
1: No, no, no that makes sense. I mean, because a lot of it comes down to, and I relate to you on this and to, you, you had mentioned self-comparisons. This, it's all, all these pieces of feedback are just stockpiling ammo. You know, it allows you to get an idea of, okay, this worked, that didn't work. It's a real-time experiment. And really, I think if I hear you correctly and I've, I've followed your previous work is where you lose is if you let somebody's feedback completely take over and you start following their plan instead of your own. Um, and I think that resonated with me because as I transitioned industries from being just somebody that worked in sports performance to now leadership and communication, I mean, just had people all over saying, no, you should do this or you should open your own facility and you should do this. And I said, no, like, I know I have a following in this space, but now I'm going into another space cause they're interrelated. They have to deal with people. And I know you have an agent and I know that you continue to grow in in a lot of different ways, but how do you still manage to block out all these? Like what, what's your filter for when somebody gives you a suggestion and maybe it's your agent, maybe it's your audience, maybe it's other things of you should write this, you should do that. How do you honor your audience without letting them dictate where you should go all the time? You know
0: what? I don't get a lot of, you should, I get a lot of, you did it wrong. Ooh. So, or, um, well, not, not that directly, but that sense of, this, I don't know what this is, or I don't know what to work with it. it. And I always have to put myself in the lens of I'm writing for audiences and it's all about what the audience gets. Like there was, I might've talked about this before and I don't want to like double up on it, but there's the the most shared bud seed things are what kind of Harry Potter house are you? Or what brand of cheese are you? And it's it's all about what are you? Yeah, and it's about the, the people and, like, what they see in their stuff. And if, if my work is not focused enough around a benefit for other people, then it's not a sticky. And that's where I always have to come around to, like, the difference between, like, art and commerce. And they can absolutely intersect, but they always have to talk to the audience first. It can't just be, like, there's this feeling. It's, like, other people are like, yeah, I do that too. What? Okay.
1: Yeah, no. So
0: really sort of focusing on why is this, why is this marketable, usable, resonating is, is the one thing I have to loop like turning ideas into something people actually want is, is my, is my editorial. Dip, I think.
1: And a lot of that comes from not just knowing yourself really well, but, but knowing your audience. And I think something that our audience will pre- appreciate because they've asked this question a lot. I loved your take on it. I'd, I'd love for you to expand on it, but we get a lot of questions of, you know, should, should I define a niche? And, and we hear this all the time, right? And, and you can almost think that finding a niche can be overrated advice um, because are you going to be a specialist? Are you going to be a generalist? Can you be a generalist specialist? And, and we can make it complex and, and overly complicated at times, but for you, it seems like that you followed something that you loved, that made sense to you, you know, you owned that and then that became your niche but it didn't seem to me that you set out to make that your niche right away. Am I correct in that assertion? Or if not, can you kind of elaborate on that story?
0: That was a really good summation of my non strategy strategy, like tweak as I go system. Yes. um, I think finding like, okay, if this works for me, how can I make it work better for other people? Seems to just be like, okay, that's how you find an audience. Because if you go after an audience that you don't understand or, If if you're in advertising and you get a persona and you're like, I've never met this person, this doesn't seem right, this feels like an Excel spreadsheet, this doesn't feel like a human being, if you can make it human being, like think about an actual person in a room that you're talking to, that makes it so much more powerful than here are the demographic stats of my target audience.
1: Yeah, and I think... But, but that can be tough for people when they combine, you know, the combination of imposter phenomenon and then their audience, we can, we can tend to let data override our thinking sometimes. And again, it goes back to why, you know, your work is so special. You're able to draw, you know, relationships between seemingly complex ideas. I have to ask you this though, you've drawn a lot of relationships and I'm putting you on the spot. Totally. Is there one idea that it kind of, and haunt is a dramatic word, but you know, go with me that you, you still are looking to draw that index card for, that, that graph, that relationship, and you just haven't found it yet, and it's like this elusive, you're like, I'm going to make this work, and it, it's always running in the back of your mind. Does that question make sense, what I'm asking here?
0: Yes, Ben. I actually have that document open on my desktop right now. <laughs> it, is, uh, <laughs> it is how to structure luck and force serendipity.
1: Ooh. How to structure and luck and I force could- serendipity
0: yeah I've been I've been messing with and like reading up on I downloaded all of these like PhD dissertations on how humans think about luck and what is luck and is it internal or external and how is it how is it perceived and can you be a lucky person with nothing or can you be absolutely wealthy and feel like the world is against you and these like how people think about what luck is and how you can manifest luck by thinking about it as something you can do is yeah. like a huge structural thing. So I have like 12, 12 details of luck. And it's, it's like a hundred page thing at this point. Like it's, it's been, it's been just my, my fiddle document for a very long time.
1: Yeah. That's, that's, I like that term a fiddle document. I think that that's, it definitely is interesting because the hustle people in today's culture would say, Oh no, that's preparation meets opportunity, you know, but, um, I also think there's one, you had, uh, something on your blog indexed, uh, the shrug of doom. And I love this one because I think a little bit of luck comes from, you know, people have to have some imagination, right? And in this one, you guys got to check it out again. It'll be in the show notes, but you have the triumph of misery and you have a big circle there and you have another circle, like kind of like a Venn diagram of the failure of imagination, And then in the middle is, this is just the way things are. And I think that that can get a lot of people right now where they just feel like, oh, it's a pandemic. This is just my luck. It's this and that. It's how much of what you think we experience as hardship or a block in an opportunity or a failure to take advantage of a situation comes from that lack of lateral thinking or the failure to imagine, as you said, you know, like how much of it really do you think that ties into luck and being able to overcome these things.
0: I think, yeah, I think that is, that's a pivotal bit of it is being able to see like beyond your tunnel vision of this is my situation now. And that was the one thing when I was in advertising that really was like stunning to me. It's like, okay, you are a creative organization and all you do all day is make things and your, your title is creative. And yet you can't see like beyond your job description of how you can be creative in other ways. And that always just, like, dawned on me because, like, you would think, like, oh, well, maybe you do this on the side or that on the side or something or you have some other creative outlet. And rarely, rarely was that true. And from, like, my first day out of college, I was just like, what is happening? This is so (laughs) weird.
1: Yeah, well... I, and I want to ask you this as a devil's advocate. So that's, that's been a big debate in the field that I originally started in sports performance. Is If you had a quote unquote side hustle or a thing on the side, you were looked at as not very committed, right? It's a very traditionalist field that is, you know, rah, rah, we're not in it for the money. You know, we're, we're servant based leaders, but then at the same time, you'd see a lot of people in the coaching industry burn out, you know, because that stuff's well and good in their early twenties and even late twenties. But the minute they have more than a crock pot to take care of, they can't keep up with bills. And so uh, we had, and and, and coaching, right. I'm sure, you know, many professions like this coaching is not alone, but you know, what would happen is they almost kind of look at self-promotion or charging for your time or your service as a bad thing. And I just felt like that always, you know, from somebody that used to feel like that because I believed in the dogma, but then realized, no, like these side projects make me better at my main job. Do you have any take on that? Or do you have experience yeah. working in industries like that as well?
0: Yeah. When you said, um, I do it for the passion of it. I'm not in it for the money. That is the most exploitive way to set up any industry possible. Because yeah. all, you're, all that's going to do is work people to death and never let them actually function as a career it's just going to just burn people out and i hate that and i hate that so much
1: yeah i and, and i have too i just feel like you know because what you're right it, it takes people that maybe had a hobby that became a passion that then they kind of identified as their purpose and then you're right it it exploits them but where do you think the onus is on the creator or the person being exploited exploited not exploded that would be a different graph entirely uh doing it's things for passion a, it's the and like same
0: sort of emotional
1: feeling. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Exploited and exploded. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was going to say it's the same sort of feeling. Right.
1: Ah, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're a fellow weirdo. I appreciate that. Um, but where do you think the onus is? Cause like on my end, just to give you an example, I don't want to leave you in left field with the question. I would say guys like, you know, you can't expect other people to value you or your work until you do you know, but then so many people don't, well, I don't know what to charge. And it's, it's a basic understanding of economics, but not everybody has that understanding. So for you, what, you know, what has guided you in saying, I'm, you know, I'm proud of my work. I, I, I have a lot of fun doing it, but I'm not scared to charge for it. And, and this is where I stand. Could you talk to us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. I get a lot of uh, inquiry, you know, like, Hey, can you do, Hey, can you do? And the first response is always, hey, it's great to meet you. I would love to talk more about this. What's your budget? And if they don't reply, then I'm like, i saved myself so much misery.
1: Yeah, creating a barrier there, right?
0: Yeah, I think, ba- I mean, boundaries help in, in two ways. They keep you from hurting yourself, and they help. Uh, they keep others from taking advantage of you. And just kind of knowing, it's one of those like key negotiating strategies. Like, what is a line I will not cross? What is my absolute, I do it for this and not less? and once you have one of those it's just really free
1: and did it help at all when you when you got an agent i mean to to some of our audience that might even seem like out of reach or nebulous for them i know you know i've been told after my book hey you should get an agent and i'm like oh my god like how do i even how do i even find that and how do i find somebody that's not you know going to just like try to take me for you know everything and what have you was was that a process, and if you're not comfortable sharing, you, you don't have to, but was that a process that was kind of harrowing to you at first? Was it a natural, organic kind of relationship? What was that like, having an agent or an advocate and finding that person?
0: Yeah, Um. well, with literary agents, they're all about books, and there's still like the whole zone of everything else you do is informed by that relationship, but not really tended by it. Mm. So it's not like I have one person that runs everything I do. A lot of my personal contracts and things like that, I just I run myself. But knowing, just being able to say, well, my book agent will do this. they kind of people are a little more <clears throat> a little more willing to take me seriously. Which is again, like I need all of the the backup and stats and things I can get to be taken seriously because I I draw things on index cards and that's <laughs> kind of a silly job. But but yeah, having learning about how those contracts get shaken out helps me shake out other contracts. And even if it's just, Oh, I need this bit of lingo. I need this bit of lingo. I'm not comfortable with this. I would ask somebody else Feels like it's been really educational in aspects of my work that aren't books.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can appreciate that. I remember the first time we sent somebody when, when I opened my own business about five years ago a contract and they said whoa getting kind of formal aren't we and i said well what do you mean and they said well we just never got a contract for this kind of engagement or what have you and i just said well you know we're just trying to do things in a professional manner and and that concept of turning pro or when you do start taking contracts and your work a little bit more seriously like you said it it can be daunting or unique at first because you you have to learn a lot but at the end of the day, it leads you to higher level work, right? People that take your work more seriously, higher levels of commitment. Is there a time in the past where you were all in on a project, right? Somebody asked you, and, and of course, I'm not asking for names or anything like that, but somebody, you, you were all in, but it became very clear that the way they valued the project wasn't the same. And, you know, if so, like, what did you take away from that? You know, a, a time where you felt like, man, I, I always am giving more then I feel like I'm getting back from this or I'm having trouble finding people that are equally committed. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that happens a lot, but it usually seems to stem from people have different expectations. Mm. And when the expectations are just assumed, they're, they're completely divergent and that doesn't work at all. When you just start getting to work, if you're doing something, you're like, I'm going to change the whole goddamn world. (laughs) And the other people are like, I'm going to make 12 bucks. And it's, that those two dimensions are not going to fit together. So if you're, if you're working with somebody who's like, this is just my day job, I really couldn't care less, and you're just all in, that's, that's going to hurt you and it's going to annoy them and you're going to hate that person. And, but if you can just talk about like, well, what are we doing here? If it really is just like, I'm just going to make $12 today, I'm not going to change the whole world you'll take a whole weight off your shoulders and you can put your energy toward the actual world changing stuff. But you've got to know what you're seriously getting into with the people you're getting into it with.
1: Yeah. And I think that's another good point of something that when you're really passionate about something and you don't have those expectations lined up, that can lead to a lot of burnout in your career. Cause you know, you might, if you don't have that clarity, like you said, you're working with a lot of people that end up being not you actually, but you could end up working with a lot of people that are just like, yeah, I want to make 12 bucks where you actually do want to change the world or at least some small little corner of it. Right. Like at least you're, uh, and, um, it's a really easy way to lead to burnout. I know at a time where I felt like I was putting out so much content, things that, you know, I didn't want other people to go through certain things that I had to go through the hard way, but then it just led to more and more people wanting free advice. And as much as I hated to say it, that free advice started wearing me out and I became cynical. And then I became just kind of almost angry. Cause I looked, I'd look at my wife and I'd say, no matter how much I try to help, people just want like information. They don't even want to seem to do anything with it. Does anything like that ever nag at you? I mean, again, you're, you seem like such a easygoing person, but does this concept of just expectations of free and now and, and microwave advice, does that ever erode a little bit of you as a creator?
0: Um, it, it it really irks me when people are like, well, I'm going to do this amazing thing and it's going to be so fantastic and wonderful and we're going to go on a world tour and blah and I need you to draw it. And I'm like, uh, what's your budget? And they're like, but I want you to be part of something amazing. And you're like, who the hell, what? No. And then you have to be like, I want no part of your like amazing, amazing thing because you don't have a budget. Like that's, that's one of those gifts. God, people, like, what is happening? Like, you can't, and I I get annoyed with that, and it happens a lot. And it's just one of those things, like, everyone thinks, like, that whole, like, well, you're in it for the passion, and you're like, if I put all my passion into whatever weird projects people throw at me constantly, I would make a lot of weird stuff for other people and starve.
1: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think that, you know, it just goes into people people don't take it seriously. And I call it the weaponization of guilt. You know, that's, that's what happens when they say, Oh, you should be in it for the Ooh, right. Yeah. Re- you should be in it for the right reasons, or that you don't know the difference it's going to make. And, or my favorite one, this could get you some great exposure. And you're like, Yeah, I need that on indexed, right? I need like something about the weaponization of guilt and trying to trying to have people, you know, that, that take advantage and just like gavage these little things down the throats of people that actually want to do meaningful work. You know, it's, it's absolutely crazy for me. Um, you know, when, when you think about how your ability to, to think laterally, you've talked about themes, we've talked about pattern recognition, how have you trained that? And and I know for some people, it really does tend to come naturally. I mean you know, to, to a degree. And I'm sure there's some of that with you and it's a little bit of both, but like, how do you continue to strengthen your ability to see patterns between seemingly disparate things? I know you read fiction and I think that that's awesome. I mean, Mm -hmm. do do you think that people just need to explore and play more or what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think don't, don't censor your input on what you, what you read and what you study. Like some people are like, I only read the economist and I am extremely, professional in what i do and i would never watch trashy television and like trashy television is just like the new like greek choir like there's so much out there and i think putting in all sorts of inputs and yeah training it a little bit sure but just being able to say you know what there is a parallel between this kardashians episode and this episode of the price is right and what bloomberg said about bangladeshian drought like Mm these are all interrelated. And if I just sit and think about it, I will forge some weird neuron in my brain. that will come in handy 20
1: years later. No, that's a, that's a perfect example. And the Bangladeshi and drought is something to be aware of as is the Godzilla dust cloud, right? Don't you love that? We live in a world where the Godzilla dust cloud, is fire
0: about, tornado,
1: fire tornadoes, Godzilla, <laughs> dust clouds, everything. Um, and the, re- the reason, plagues. what'd you say? Plagues. Yeah. Plagues. Every, I mean, there's, murder hornets. I mean, the thing is though, if if
0: you read all of the news, there's always something absolutely horrible happening at every single minute in every single place in the world. And you can get really bogged down in the dark, weird, horribleness of that. Or you can just be like, you know what? This dark, weird, horribleness can probably inform something good. And something good can be made out of all of this. And just knowing that interconnectedness too, like, because I think right now people are just getting like doldrums of what the news is. Because it's dark, like we are in fantastically historic times and it's, it's dark news.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, you even look at the time we're recording this, the stock market is edging back up towards, you know, new highs pre pandemic and, and everything like that. And, and people are just boggled by this, right? They're like, well, I don't know. Like I'm out of the market. I'm not doing this. And it's like, we're, we're in a time now where the world rebounds in a lot of fantastic ways. But if you're not careful about what you put in your brain, it's just going to take you down further. And, um, you know, it leads me into something I wanted to ask you about. We run, uh, these leadership and communication workshops that are heavily improv based. Yeah. One thing we struggle with, and this is why I I think you're so well-suited to kind of elaborate on this is, you know, improv is all about constraints, Jessica. It's like, what can you do with this and that? Right. And so we'll tell somebody, um, you know, we'll get them in a group and we say, Hey guys, it's real simple. And I'm giving you an example of a game. Uh, we collectively, and let's say there's five of us have to play as a, a news team and we are reporting on something and we'll, we'll ask somebody for a noun and let's say they said pterodactyls and we said, great, what are they doing? Um, what are these pterodactyls doing? Jessica, give me, give me any kind of like verb. Are they dawdling? What are they doing?
0: They're robbing.
1: They're robbing, right? So we have pterodactyls robbing and, and where are they robbing? Where in the world are they? Are they at Bloomingdale's? Or are they in India? Where are they?
0: They're in the back of the dry cleaner around the corner from my house.
1: There you go. Pterodactyls are robbing a dry cleaner around the corner from your house. So we'll give them that premise and we'll we'll tell people like everybody kind of has to do it in either a one-word story format, right? Or they have to build off in some way what their partner gives them. But inevitably, you know, as we do this, there's one one or two people in the workshop that are like, Well, I don't get what something like this has to do with real life. And we try to make the point that That's, that's a response I'd like to have, right? Like what you just did. We try to make the point that like, sometimes life gives you seemingly irrelevant information, but like, you still have to, you know, do something with it. You have to act in synchrony. You have to be able to adapt it. And the, the robbing pterodactyls are no different than any other piece of information. We may not that, that isn't relevant. This, the the thing I want to ask you is what do you think separates people that understand the true purpose of something like that or even the this what you think are silly connections that you draw on your index cards and people that see the bigger picture right what what do you think is the block between people that just feel like they take things too literally and they don't see the bigger picture what are they missing in their life are they missing diverse work experiences or is it something uh they didn't get enough nursery rhymes as a child what do you, what do you think that is and i know this is very vast i'm not asking you to psychoanalyze I'm just saying your take on, yeah. on that thing.
0: I would, okay, so again, this is a really specific bit of feedback for that mindset Yeah, is to read Richard Feynman's six easy pieces six where pieces. he basically summarizes all of physics in like a really short, easy to read book that just sort of blows your mind.
1: Love this. Six easy pieces. So
0: yeah, it's fantastic. And you basically just get the idea that like, Everything is electric and everything is working. I wonder how this is. And we're all made of tiny molecules. And this one tiny molecule can change all of this. And like a nuclear reaction starts with something so small, you can't even see it. And that just having that book rolling around in the back of your head will really make you realize like, one, my problems are small. And two, I'm small and the world is huge and awesome and really interesting.
1: Yeah. I love that. It's very much like when you think of screenwriting, right? Three act structure or, a five act structure of like the components of, of story. And I very much look at your work, everything you do tells, tells a story one individually as those index cards, right. But two, the bigger picture of, Hey, there's connections. There's all kinds of fun, whimsical, goofy, like you said, sometimes deep and dark connections between things. And, and ultimately, you know, th- that's life, you know? And so is that kind of how you think about some things now? Do you think about them in, in six easy pieces metaphorically so to say, like or how do you break down? What's the first step when you get met with a really complex idea that, that you want to break down? How do you look at it?
0: I always sort of look for the vocabulary word that that works best for the big words, the big topic. And it's not always the most obvious word. It could be something a little bit oblique or a little bit strange. But finding one or two words that wrap around a subject and then working with those words to wrap further like I can do a lot with actual words like those are my concrete building blocks and from there I can kind of think through other topics so sometimes like if you and a, a random stranger have like maybe one thing in common that is a huge huge thing upon which you can build an entire world and just finding finding those good words can go so far
1: I like that can can we do uh, an example of that do you mind Yeah, go for it. All right, so I'm going to give you a pretty basic word. I won't give you diaspora, although I do love that word. There's, God, that was a, that's, I think that's what made me fall in love with your work even more. Um, We're going to start simple. What we focus on at Art of Coaching is communication, you know, not, and not trust falls and, and hey, look them in the eye and tell them you care, Billy, but like truly uh, the science of what it takes to be a more effective communicator. And believe it or not, there's some Mm -hmm. people that we have to sell on the fact that, like, that's a really important intangible or skill. That, like, oddly enough, like, kind of like you know, I know you have a three-year-old son. Is he three still at the time of this recording, or is he older now?
0: He is seven
1: now. Oh, he's seven! Wow. Okay. Wow. So yeah, my previous yeah. research.
0: Time is, a, time is a flat circle in pandemic time. He'll be forty-two tomorrow.
1: There you go. Okay. So you're um, like, and I got now. I got to remember where I was going because I just got embarrassed that I got bad. I did bad research there. But the point being uh, is, so we... Go ahead. Communication. Yeah, no, communication. Communication was your key. Right. And we try to get people to understand that, like, really, like, there is such a science to this in terms of getting people to do what they need to do. You've got to get on the same page. So um, let's just use the word communication because that can be broad and a big idea. And there's so many things. Break that down for me.
0: Okay. So I'm going to start with just communication, just sort of like doing one of those like serial killer walls where you connect all your ideas with like red string and then like lose your mind. Yes. So you're going to, I'm going to have like static and eye contact and friction and intimacy and formality and just all the words that go around communication and thinking which one of those is how I'm going to relate to this person. If they're giving me like resistance to the idea of communication. They're not communicating with me the way they think they are, but they are giving me something else. And like everything that you're communicating to other people fits on that on that crazy like serial killer wall. It's like all the little nitty gritty details and finding the one string from you to the other person is how your serial killer wall is going to help you get your next victim.
1: I really like that. The Not serial- victim
0: client. Yeah,
1: there you go. Hey, either or uh, serial, kill- serial killer, serial <laughs> killer wall. I think what I should have done is I should have challenged you more as I should have said, let's find the connection between communication and Wayne Brady, and then just giving you that and let you run with it, you know, and see where you gone. But no, I think that's a great idea of your, you're, and I think a little bit of that is I recognize a weakness of myself. I would try to break down because I'll present a lot. And I know you, you do a lot of presentations all over the world as well. Well, neither of us do a ton right now, but when you do presentations, you're trying to tell something complex in, I don't know, 15, 30, 45 minutes. And what never worked for me was basic outlining. And I always felt like, man, I'm kind of dumb. Like, I, you know, cause the basic outline would end up being like 32 pages. Cause I go into some rabbit holes. And then one thing I started doing is just taking post-it notes and thematically, right? I'd say like, all right, here are some key themes I want to cover. What are ideas? And then I'd stick those post-it notes with the subcategories or some themes under that. And I could move it around on my table. And because it was tangible, Jessica, it helped me a lot more than just an outline. So is your serial killer wall an example of a quirky way that you organize things within your environment or what is something that if somebody saw you do? they were like, what is this, is this woman? Okay. Is it okay? But it really works for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So my desk is a total mess. I've got a lot of weird watercolors and inks and stamps and some, what is that? uh, Cortisone 10 that expired in 2017. That's going out (laughs) and just all sorts of stuff and random bits of glass that I find on the beach and stuff. And You never know what kind of stuff is going to be useful. Like even if it's just like picking it up and twirling it around in your hands, that's going to trigger some sort of a thought. But really outlining things and thinking about like what am I supposed to say to these people, it always starts. It's most helpful for me if I can be like, who are these people and why are they here and what am I doing here? Like, am I here for comic relief? Am I here to actually illustrate a topic? Like, what what's my role and what do they what do they need from me and how can I do that in the most fun Non obnoxious way, well, slightly obnoxious way that I can.
1: (laughs) Slightly, and you know, ultimately, that's what I want to know about you. As you talked about, who are these people? What do they want from me? Jessica, who are you, and what do you what do you want? How about that for a deep, deep thoughts by Jack Candy?
0: Yeah, you know what? That was so cool. I wish that was still around.
1: I know that was um, great.
0: Yeah, what do I want? Is I really want to do work that people people need. You know, like, I've, I've learned that enough. But it's not enough to just do work that is creatively satisfying to me. It has to be work that other people get and say, oh, wow. And it's not it's not showing off anymore. It's not like, yeah, look, I can prove that I'm really clever and I can get hired to be clever other places. It's more like, how can my cleverness make somebody else get something and feel better and, like, work around a problem they have? And kind of getting at that bigger meaning of work really means like talking to other people and being in more places and figuring out like what other industries i can go and illustrate in which are pretty much all of them but then proving it is going to be fun and it's a pandemic and i was like like a cure and all that but you know what i mean
1: i do know and and i think that that willingness to evolve is is fascinating because again and i mentioned it in the intro you know for our audience you originally working as a copywriter in advertising, you know, especially when you, that, and you were doing that when you first started your blog indexed, correct? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And then like knowing that, you know, that, that you worked with everything from, and and I, I thought this was, there's so many things I want to ask you in context of these three things, but we won't have time, but knowing that you've written for banks, lawyers, lingerie companies, we still find this time that even during the pandemic, there are people that, that we see out there that, you know, they're they're in this position or they work for this organization and the organization looks good on their resume, right? It could be a professional sports team. It could be a big bank. You know, it could be anything. And certain people get scared to leave because they feel like they're really, if they're honest with themselves, their credibility is kind of attached to that organization. Maybe they spent a long time trying to get there. Um, but, you know, now it's oh, yeah. like, I mean, the the world's going to change. I mean, even sports as we know it is going to be different and in and the, the field of research and what we look at within research and all these things. When did, when was a time where you really knew, like, all right, I, I got to get out of what I'm doing and I've got to follow this? Because you were a part of companies that, that went under several times, correct?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, a lot of agencies I worked at. I was the typhoid Mary of that agencies in Columbus, Ohio, for a good several years. But um, so the worst one was... Uh, JPMorgan Chase and their subprime lending stuff. And the simple math of it was just cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it wasn't sustainable. Was, it
0: was, no. And it was taking advantage of people who didn't realize what they were signing. And it wasn't every time I had a good headline that would sell like a thousand more mortgages, I had doomed a thousand more people and I couldn't do that. Yeah. And that, and then I went, I mean, I made the moral decision to go to Victoria's Secret, which is hostile and terrible in its own way. But I mean, I had to. I had to get away from the bank. And and the the company and the people who worked at the bank were just like, no, this is just our our business, and this is what we're doing, and didn't see that it was really evil. And that was hard. That was the hardest because people were like, you're insane, and that's a good job. And I was like, yeah, but like, no.
1: Well, it lends insight into the idea that, you know, sometimes what we perceive to be certainty or security, again, oh, that's a good job. That's a big organization. Oh, that's a noteworthy client, you know, whatever. Sometimes those can be the most illusory, you know, like, because we think it's a security blanket or a way that we can achieve stability or credibility, but it's really just a trap sometimes, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And another thing I like working with various brands, like people who've been inside a company for forever. We'll be like, don't you believe in our brand? And I'm like, no, we're making it up as we go every day. It's not a real thing. Like you've got to believe in something that's not literally made up out of whole cloth and Photoshop. You've got to believe in something like sturdier.
1: So within that, what do you think is something people seem to be chasing or really into today that is made out of, like you said, this kind of just tablecloth. It's, it's, it's not, it's not sturdy. Do you think there's something that we're going to look back on? And again, this is forecasting. Have fun with it, right? Like five, 10, 20 yeah. years and be like, oh my God, how did we not see that we are totally chasing the wrong thing with that?
0: I think, okay, so my kid is super into Minecraft right now and any opportunity he gets to go onto YouTube and look up his favorite, like Minecraft influencers is, I'm just like, what is happening? <laughs> this is, there's an entire economy. On Minecraft. So- around this yeah and these kids these kids love this and this is so ephemeral and high-paced and crazy and it's just like sugar crack and i and thinking like what are we building industries around
1: that's a that's weird ephemeral things it's it's crazy sugar crack is first of all that's the first time i've ever heard that term um that's my new llc or it might be my rap name after this what's your rap name by the way if you had a rap name i need to know this uh if you had a rap name today and you don't get to shoes right like you're you're a serious rapper jessica Hagee. i mean it's a headline now right you've gone from indexed now now you you're a serious rapper what's yes. your what's your name okay.
0: um it's got to have something about opossum opossum yes i will just i will when i don't know what to say i will just play it and and it and it'll be like half of a joke <laughs>
1: That, that, that that works. No, but you're, you're right. Like building something that's non-ephemeral, non-ephemeral, like the, the sugar crack. And, you know, for us, like we always believe that's communication. Like no matter where AI goes, technology goes at the end of the day, people are gonna uh, need somebody that has interpersonal skills and intangibles. If, if I was an illustrator, that would be my superhero movie instead of the Incredibles, I'd have the intangibles. Right. And like the kid would be really good at making people feel, um, you know, like they've been heard and the dad would be an excellent, you know, communicator in another way. And the mom would be something else. But like these are the things we don't invest in enough. You know, what what skill do you think is going to be one of the most marketable in a good way? Right. Not an ephemeral way. What do you think is a skill that some people should really be doubling down on right now um, that, that you think is time-tested you know it's it's the lindy effect it's gonna it's gonna be around forever but people maybe overlook it or ignore it
0: i think um anymore tinkering is probably your best bet if you can if you can take something apart and rebuild it and it doesn't have to be a mechanical thing it can be an idea or a relationship or anything but really knowing how things work so people are like learn to code and like that's just one form of how things are assembled but like how's your house put together? How's this tree work? Like, why is this, why is this family relationship like this? And like actually tinkering with the stuff that we interact with all the time. I think that has implications for everything because once you know how something works, you can rebuild it and you get better.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Tinkering can definitely be, and, and we're relatively new parents. I have an eight month old and there's a lot of different things that, I mean, gosh, we, we tinker with all kinds of stuff because we can't get, whether it's a handyman, I, I'm not, that person, right? I'm not Bob Vila. I'm not just going to be like, Oh, it's Sunday. Let me go build stuff. Um, but we can't get some help that we normally could, uh, because of the pandemic and people won't come to houses or what have you. And I think in the past tinkering always freaked me out. Cause I was super type A and I'm like, uh, oh, if I don't hang this picture, right, there's going to be a hole in the wall. And I know I could patch it, but I don't want to have to. But then when you just realize like, it's okay to break things sometimes it's okay Oh, to, yeah. to fail. And again, that's another thing I love about improv is like, it's a safe place to fail and experiment, but we've lost that art. Haven't we?
0: Well, half the time the failure is the most hilarious bit. Like when my favorite SNL pieces are when they all cry and they're just like, they can't fold it in anymore. And that's, those are like the
1: most fun to watch. You might be one of the only people. And I'm glad to hear it. My wife and I are avid SNL fans. And all we ever hear is people say, well, "I don't watch that anymore? It's not as good, you know, since the days with, you know, whether it's Dan Aykroyd or Chris Farley or, you know, what have you, but like you know, it's Saturday Night Live is 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 a staple in this household. Has comedy always been something that you've been drawn to?
0: Yeah. I think the like the one thing that really like that I was just like I can do that when I was like seven was this series of books called Sniglets. Have you ever heard of these? No, from, like, the 80s. no, you need very, to tell me more it's about very this. niche. Okay, so it was like a series of these little these little, like, cartoon books that were sold in, like, Spencer Gifts. Like, this is I the vibe that we're going gifts. here. It's, I it's love I love Spencer, Spencer not, Gifts. I know. <laughs> well, now it's a, like, perverted, like, grass barrette Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it used to be, like, Good. weird, like, far-side-esque things. And a Sniglet was basically a book of portmanteaus for words that don't exist but should.
1: Mmm. I like that.
0: And it would have, yeah, and it was, it would have, like, words for silly things like the crust on the edges of your toothpaste tube has its own word and the feeling you get when you walk into a room and forgot why you went there had a word and just it was basically like if you think about oh yeah there's a German word for that it was like no there's a sniglet for that
1: there's a sniglet and
0: they were just for that they were just obnoxious and weird and total like dad jokes half the time and me being like this little kid was just like this is my future and there's- I don't know why I don't know why snigglets were like my thing but i was like that's what i'm gonna do
1: that's phenomenal is it, so is there a word that you had came up with that you really feel like should be a word uh, but isn't
0: you know i probably just stumble over words and and put them together like yesterday i used the last of the butter and i was like hey can you grab me a a, a block or a, a brick or a, a wall or a, or a stick that's right, a stick of butter that's what butter is yeah, I'm just thinking, like, what if there was a brick of butter? And I was like, oh yeah, the, the fairs are closed, and they're not carving faces out of it now.
1: Yeah, if if there is a brick of butter, it's at Costco. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can buy cheese that weighs as much as a fiat at at Costco, and so I'm sure they have a brick of butter. I always like to go to websites to see if that's a thing. Like, I, if, if you didn't have my full attention, and I'd never do this when I'm interviewing anyone, especially you, I go to brickofbutter.com. You know, because I want to see if so, that's the beauty. Somebody's thought of that. There's definitely oh yeah. There's, oh. The, there's definitely a com. There's got to be.
0: Yeah. And there, there's got to be. That's the thing, though. If you put any word with any other word, there's probably something built up around it already. It's a band somewhere.
1: Yeah. No, 100%. All right. Well, you know, we want to honor your time. So we're going to get into a little bit of a fun lightning round here. And one of the things we haven't really came up with the title. We kind of go back and forth. We've called this devil's advocate. We've called it hot and cold. We've called it something else. We've called it a lot of things, but here's the gist. I'm going to give you a quote, right? Now, It's uh, it, I'll, I'll give you an idea of where the quote's from or what have you, and you need to make an argument or just talk about, like, why you think that quote is correct, and then I need you to flip it. I need you to talk about why it's also not correct, right? It's kind of like gray area, right? We've gotten away from the gray area in life. Everybody wants to be very black and white in their thinking, so it's just something to have fun with. You know, nobody's going to, you shouldn't get any hate mail from it, anything like that. Are you willing to play?
0: Yeah, I, I'm cool with hate mail.
1: Okay, cool with hate mail. Yeah, that. I, <laughs> I, I feel like you have a really humorous way to, to deflect those things. All right, here's the quote, and it's come from a book that you've recommended in the past, The Goldfinch. All right, uh, in The Goldfinch, yeah. there is a quote that says, sometimes it's about playing a poor hand well. Sometimes it's about playing a poor and hand well now you choose um which one you want to do first whether you agree with it and why and whether you disagree with it and why but you're going to do both
0: okay so this is this quote actually has like a reference for my late grandmother had this like embroidered and hanging in her bathroom
1: and she that. was a okay. like a,
0: a world level bridge player and she was always about like yeah you can do something with everything and it all depends on what other people have too and a hand of cards is a relational object it's not something that's just up to you and it's not something that only reflects you it's something that your partner can play off of too especially with bridge and if your partner has a stronger hand then your weaker hand might be leverageable as the round rounds yeah, on the other hand we can talk about how that quote is just complete bullshit because of absolute structural inequality and you know what the poor hands should not be felt at all, and we should be dealing with that first and foremost before we make people who got the short end of the stick feel like they have to do extra work just to get to the table.
1: Beautiful. Very well done, and improvising on the spot. Very well done. You're getting a golf clap. Um, all right, here's another one. It's called Break the Block. Inevitably, no matter how okay. much of us, like, or we believe to be subject matter experts in something, or no matter how fluid a skill comes, We all get blocks, right? Whether it's writer's block, creator block, parenting blocks, whatever that is. I need to know the oddest thing in the eye of the beholder, of course, that you do to kind of get out of a creative block. Like what's something that you've done in the past that like really works for you, but somebody else might be like, Oh Lord, really? Is there anything goofy that helps you break the block? Um, well, I
0: mean, one of my, really weird habits is that I walk very very long distances every day and I think if I if I don't do that I start to get blurry and I can't think straight so I I think what do I have today I've got like 6.7 miles and if I don't get another like three or four by the end of the day I won't be I won't be organized and I know that that people hear that and they're like we are really strange and that's messed up and like how long does that take you and I'm like about three hours, but I leave at like five in the morning. So it's fine. And that is really like the one thing I figured out that keeps me sane, like, especially now when kids are underfoot and nobody can go anywhere. And I still wander around and I jot notes on my phone and I keep myself from going completely nuts.
1: I can appreciate that. I'm, I'm also an avid walker. I mean, there's people that, well, we live in this world of intensity, right? And there's a lot of people that think that just because I train athletes that like, everything I do workout wise has to be super intense. And it's like, no, cause I channel that intensity into other areas of my life, you know, and you know, you're a parent, mm-hmm. right? When, when all of a sudden now you're doing your own venture and you have a parent, you know, th- there's little things that you can only budget so much of that emotional energy and that focus to, um, I do have to ask though, does your son still like donuts? I remember hearing the story about when he was three, you guys would go get a donut every yeah. day cause he was a picky eater. Does he still love donuts?
0: He is, less of a donut scene. we still haven't gotten him to eat cake or ice cream or frosting so the plain cake donut is still our go-to like treat for him i don't know what what his deal is He, he likes bland things and bland things only so he's very blonde um but yeah he's not he's not so much into the donuts but he is into walking with me because when we do go for long walks just him and i he has my complete attention and he can just talk and be like so I'm going to talk to you about this. I'm going to talk to you about this. I'm going to talk to you about this. And like, how is this small person holding so many
1: words inside? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> You go, sir, sir, where are you coming up with these things? Where is this generator? You're doing awesome. Um, all right, two more easy ones. You've talked about how you can go down deep, dark rabbit holes sometimes. I like the term dark. I don't think we talk about the dark side of things enough. I think we tend to have a society that looks at those things as curses or, you know, weaknesses and, and things we've got to get rid of. Uh, but, you know, you can... Not everybody needs to be the the hero of their own story. They've got to embrace their inner villain sometimes as well. What is your favorite villain in any movie or book? And I'll allow you to use an anti hero as well if villain is too strong for you. Uh, Willy Wonka. Oh. No, no hesitation. Unpack that. He kills children for sports. The man is
0: amazing. <laughs> like he's just the weirdest character.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, that and the Family Guy rendition of, of Willy Wonka is also great, where they just kick him in the shins, uh, the Oompa Loompas. He, he,
0: he, he's slave. He's somehow this beloved character. He murders people. He gets away with it. He manipulates people with terrible advertising. He's a vile, vile individual. And like all the Roald Dahl stories, if you've ever read his like short stories, ghoulishly good. Oh. You can kind of see how wants to popped out of there.
1: So if he's so twisted, though, why is he your favorite? Are you, like, I mean, I know you're twisted, but, you know, we unpack this more.
0: Well, so he he's basically, he's an id. He does whatever he wants constantly. Mm-hmm. He has access to everything he could possibly enjoy. Like, all of the, like, delicious things and the wealth and the time and the power. And he just starts around in his bizarre little world. And... He gets away with everything for reasons that are never mentioned in the book. And, like, the police never come after Wonka, ever.
1: Never. Yeah, and they're think, definitely on like, the payroll.
0: No. Yeah, you think about this guy, and you're like, how is he just, like, living in the middle of London, like, enslaving and murdering and, like, loving it? Like, this guy is just a nut. And you think about all the people that get away with, like, lots of little things every day. And you kind of think like, yeah, I could do a little, little evil wonk in it right now, like, not kill somebody and not like capture oompa loompas or anything, but just like having fun with his vice <laughs> as a character.
1: I do, I love it. Again, that go, that goes into creativity and, and what you're, where you're going to take it, and all those <laughs> things. And you're right; he hides in plain sight. He's definitely, you know, dubious and devious, and nobody cares because he, he wears velvet pants. Who wears velvet pants? <laughs>
0: Wonka does. I know, I, so, but we and, couldn't uh, pull that off. He was like, he could? I mean, in fourth grade, I just up that's really Wonka, complete with his mustache. Oh, he has a mustache.
1: I mean, Prince could pull and it off. Prince could I, pull just, off the Wonka. He
0: has a little Wonka in him, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, well, he had. Rest in peace, Prince. You know, but yeah, there's, I mean, there right, might be yeah. a little bit of Wonka in all of us. You know, we're all... <laughs> so, all right, here, here's another one. Uh, a time where you sent an email, a text, or I know you like Twitter, a tweet maybe to the wrong person by accident and your heart jumped into your chest, right? Is there a time where you're like, oh God. And I know you're pretty like, you're, you're awesome about just saying what you think and you're, you're very thoughtful about it and, and that carries over into your professionalism and the way you work. But surely, and this can even be a bad dream. So if you're like, well, I've never done that. I have my stuff too. I'm, I'm two together for that. Talk to me about something you've oh, done. No. Where okay, tell me, I need to hear it.
0: So it was, it was a few years ago, but I used the word, staving out in a card and I didn't know that that was negative or ableist at all I didn't know that it was a cool word used for someone who had any sort of like a static condition at all oh, I neither. just thought it was right a thing and I didn't know at all and somebody like notes like messages means like that is really a shitty thing to say like that's not cool and I was like oh my god and like, i like a quick google and I'm like of course that's a shitty word and I shouldn't have done that and I still feel like oh like, how did I, how did I do that? But, like, thank goodness somebody was like, hey, Jess, like, I know you're not a terrible person, but, like, that's a terrible word.
1: Yeah, that's a great so example. now I know not to use that word. That's a really good example, yeah, because that can be, I mean, you would have no idea, and the intention was good behind it, and, you know, the, that's going to happen sometimes. All right, I've peppered yeah, you Yeah, well,
0: with... we all live in these, like, linguistic bubbles, too, and you're just like, wait, what is that? What is this? What does this have a... Oh, God, yeah, and, like, even the time, like, growing up in... Akron, Ohio in the eighties, like so many things were said that are just like not okay And to be like in your thirties and still learning those. It's like, wow, we have so many different levels of
1: communication out there. Well, and it is tricky because like, there's other times we're using the, Oh, like if you use the, because you can be overly literal with words. Like one thing that kept me from putting work out for a long time and not doing a blog is like my background is one that's, you know, it's a very science-based field. And so when you wrote, every single thing had to be, you know, cited. I mean, if I literally said communication is important to, um, quality of life and career success, right? Like I would have to cite that if I said that, you know, um, an, an athlete getting faster can enhance his on the field performance, I'd have to cite that. And so it was always rooted in my brain. You know, I, I almost couldn't write or speak informally, but then what was frustrating is sometimes like you're around people that are too literal with their words and they just don't get to the damn point, you know? And so you realize, right. So if I think I'm being correct in that I'm citing everything, I'm using the literal definition, but that can backfire. And then being too lax with our words can backfire, you know, where, where you draw this line of what is actual social intelligence or intelligence in general. And like, I think it's just the ability to read between the lines. What do you think?
0: Yeah. I think, uh, as communication evolves and we all learn like who is extremely online, what does extremely online sound like and what does this publication sound like and what does this publication sound like? And how do people who read those publications communicate? Really kind of again, like it all comes back to like who is your who's your audience? Like, I'm not talking to like club kids in London who have their own like cockney rhyming slang for all the bands that I don't know. Like I can't communicate with them. I don't know that lingo. I don't. And knowing just like, I know how to speak to my people and my crew of people and that sort of age group while keeping my ear to the ground for other things is like the only way to go. Like I can't stay in that bubble, but I can't pretend like my bubble doesn't have a whole lot of people I can talk to. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Well, Listen, I want you to know that our community will always be happy to support you. I know you reached, I I reached out to you as a stranger, and you know you were so kind enough to to come on and share your time with us. And so you know anything you need inside or outside of your bubble, we're we're definitely happy. And within that, how can we give back to you, Jessica? You know, I'm going to share all this stuff in the show notes. You've been super gracious with your time, even the technical difficulties, but how can we give back to you? Where can we go to support your work and uh, anything that you have coming up that you'd like to let us know about?
0: Um, Gosh, I would say one, like buy all my books, like hand tools, cases, whatever works for you. Yes. That is always helpful. And the other thing is I do a lot of in-person sort of recording of other people's conversations and just listening in and then drawing in graphic form the things they say. And that, as as one of the things that I do commission-wise, is something that I'm always looking to do more of. And especially now that everyone's on Zoom and there aren't all these great conferences going on, that is something that I can still do and have that fun leap behind for people. So if anyone's looking to enhance their online conference situation, let me know and I will illustrate it.
1: Very fascinating. I like that idea. That's a unique. That's definitely a, a unique way. And so, what's the best way to to get a hold of you? Then is it contact through your website? Is it finding you on Twitter? What do you prefer as a communication medium? Um,
0: my website has all of my full contacts, But if you Google me, I have I keep all of my emails live. So anything you find will get back to me. So Twitter Twitter works really well. Uh, Instagram I'm not on as much. I'm I've been told that I should, although. If, Should whatever. And yeah, I say Twitter or my website and that's jessidehaggy.info.
1: Beautiful. And like I said, guys, we will make sure and put that in the show notes and make sure if you're listening to download the reflection sheets you guys get from each of these episodes. And Jessica, again, I can't thank you enough. Huge supporter, huge fan of your work rest assured i'm going to try to find ways that we can collaborate and also know that uh, when all this madness ends anytime you want to come to one of our uh, communication and improv workshops you have uh, complimentary access anywhere you want anytime you want Uh, we just love to have somebody that uh, you know has fun with things thinks deeply about things and and wants to interact with engaging people that also just love experimenting Uh, we'd love to have you around
0: Awesome. Thank you so
1: much. Absolutely. Guys, until next time, this is the Art of Coaching Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.